Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and reflect on and hear your word. We pray that you would speak to us now, Lord. You give us ears and hearts to receive what you have to say. If we need to be challenged, Lord, that you would challenge us. If we need to be encouraged, Lord, that you would, you would build us up. And Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you, for you are our Lord and our rock, our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So not last week, but the previous week, my family and I went on vacation, and I should just stop using that word vacation, because if, if your family's anything like my family, you go on vacation, and then you come back more tired than when you left, right? So I came back, we drove back from North Carolina, and we got into town on, not this past Monday, but the previous Monday, maybe it was last Monday, I don't know. Uh, we drove back into town, four or five o'clock in the afternoon, had small group that night. Then the next morning, I, I was in the office, staff meeting, alpha training that night. Then Wednesday, meeting with people. I'm working, trying to work on sermon. I'm working on Instructed Eucharist. By the way, Instructed Eucharist coming up this Tuesday. And just by the end of the week, I'm just tuckered out, right? I'm just tired. I'm, I'm frustrated that I didn't give myself the margin. I'm frustrated at past Curtis for not getting further along in these tasks that now present Curtis is having to work on. And I just, I'm just starting to feel overwhelmed. And, and I get a text from one of my friends. And just in this brief text interaction, I'm sharing like what's going on. He's sharing what's going on with him. He's also in ministry. We, you know, he's got a young family. We can relate to each other. And just in this short couple of texts that we send back and forth, I, feel, I just feel a little bit more calm. I feel a little less overwhelmed. I even feel like I have a little bit more energy. Now, I hope you have somebody like that or more than one somebody's like that in your life. I mean, even if you don't right now, hopefully you've experienced something like that before, that there are these relationships that God gives us, these companions in this journey of life that God gives us, and, and that the, our relationship with them, how we think about people, how we relate to people, has a big impact on, on our experience of this life. In fact, of our level of contentment, if you could say it that way. And what I think Ecclesiastes, the sort of wisdom message that it has for us this morning, is that you, we have to recognize that, that how we think about people and how we relate to people will significantly impact how much contentment we have in this life. Or if I could just put it up in a little, little more pithy, tight sort of way, you'll need companions to find contentment. I think that's the message for us this morning. And I'm using that word contentment because if you look at verse 8, it talks about the man who works but is never satisfied. And, and I think companions, having, having the right people in your life will help you find satisfaction, contentment, some, some sense of, yes, it's the way it needs to be right now, and it's good. So let's look at this together. First of all, Gohelet, the teacher, he has a couple of things to tell us about the way not to find contentment, right? Uh, so if you look at verses one through three, he says that there's no contentment when people are commodities. If we look at people as a means to get what we want, if we, quote unquote, love people because of how they make us feel or what they can do for us, then we actually aren't gonna enter into the con contentment that God wants for us, and they are not gonna be able to enter into the contentment that God wants for them. 
As you look at verse one, you see three times this word oppressed, or three times the, the root of that word, um, oppressions, oppressed, oppressors. This is why I'm using the word when people are commodities, because when you find that word oppressed, oppressors, oppression in the Bible, it actually almost always refers to some form of economic oppression. It's not just general unfairness or general injustice, but then when you look at it in the prophets and in the law, it has to do with these types of things. Charging high interest rates, the book of Ezekiel. Using corrupt weights and measures, the book of Hosea. Underpaying the poor and overpaying the rich, the book of Proverbs. Withholding uh, the poor man's wages until the next day, Deuteronomy 24, verses 14 through 15, for instance. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the foreigners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day, before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry out against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. So most of the time, in fact, sometimes that word oppress, or the Hebrew that word, uh, root that that word comes from, is actually translated extort or defraud. It has everything to do with treat, treating people as a means to an end. That I, uh, these other people are a way for me to enrich myself or empower myself or fulfill my desires. And so Ecclesiastes says, if that's your outlook on people, then you will never, they will never find comfort, he says, and you will never find contentment. In fact, from Kohelet's perspective, notice he doesn't even say this is vanity, Right? It's so self-evidently wrong that he doesn't even need to say that it's vanity. He actually goes even further and says, it's better if you've already died, because then you don't have to witness this wickedness. In fact, it's even better if this world's all there is, if you're never even born because of this economic oppression, because of turning into people into commodities. Now, of course, we know that this life isn't all that there is. Both our psalm reading and our gospel reading point us to the future reality that when Jesus comes back, he will judge the living and the dead, and that he's a righteous judge, and none of these oppressions will go unnoticed or unrecompensed by God. We are not better off dead. We are better off hoping in the one who judges the living and the dead. So how does this apply to us? We don't use unfair weights and measures. You know, we went to the Mass General store while we were in North Carolina. I don't think they rig the scale when you buy the bulk candy. You know, I don't think they're, I don't think they're making a huge profit off of Whoppers and Tootsie Rolls, right? But are there ways in which we look at people as a means to an end, as a commodity? Yeah, it could be, it could be economic. We could underpay someone who deserves more. Um, it could be... You know, we could look at people the way that we look at the food we put in our bellies or the gas we put in our cars as a, as a commodity. And maybe there's um, ways in which we don't pay attention to the health and well-being and um, flourishing of people in the forms of entertainment that we partake in. There might be a lot of ways, but the point is Kohelet warns us from thinking of other people as a means to an end, a commodity to... Um, for you to get profit or pleasure out of them. If you do that, you actually won't find contentment because there is one coming who will judge the living and the dead. So there's no contentment if people are, are commodities. The second thing he tells us is there's no contentment if people are just competition. Look at verses four through eight. In verse four, he says that all toil and all skill comes from envy. 
It's, you know, it's the keeping up with the Joneses. It's the, you're out in your yard and your neighbor pulls up in the brand new car that you're like, how did he afford that? Right? We have this instinct to, when we see something like that, we can't just be happy for our neighbor. But happy that he's found some success or she's found some success. It immediately makes us want to like redouble our efforts and like catch up and not only catch up, but pass them in our material acquisition. And that's what Kohelet is recognizing. He's, he's being a little bit hyperbolic, right? He's not saying literally all work and all ingenuity and all toil comes from envy, but a lot of it really does, right? There is a lot of keeping up with the Joneses, or I don't know what the Hebrew equivalent of that would be, but there is an envy-driven toil in our lives, and he says this is vanity, now, at the same time, he says, that doesn't mean you just throw out work altogether and you don't work hard, verse 5, right? The one who doesn't work consumes and eats his own flesh. It's like it's self-harm to not work hard, but better, he says, to have a handful of work and a handful of rest because you will never work enough to catch up with and pass everyone, which means contentment will never come because there will always be someone who has more. There will be always be someone who's smarter, quicker, stronger, has a bigger bank account, has a cooler car, has a bigger house, whatever your thing is, there will always be someone that outstrips you and you will never be able to catch them. If you are stuck in this type of verse four life, you're actually trying to live someone else's life and not the life that God has called you to, which means you will never find contentment. God said, six days shall you labor and on the seventh you shall rest. And that's a gift. Rest is a gift from God. So finding the right balance and then, as he goes on, the right motivations for our work is key to find contentment. In verse 8, he talks about the man who has, who has a, a different set of motivations. He's not trying to catch up with someone, but he's just completely forgotten that other people exist, it seems like, right? Uh, it says, the man, he works and he's never satisfied. He has no brother. He has no son. He never thinks about anybody else. He's just like the stereotypical kind of workaholic, right? It's like Charles Dickens might have read this passage and created Ebenezer Scrooge, right? Watch them up at Christmas Carol. That's the best one. Um, <laughs> that's, that's the type of thing that he's talking about. It's like you're working so hard at this thing. You have such a um, single-mindedness about this goal or this achievement or getting money that everything else just begins to fade away. People become completely inconsequential altogether. But better, Kohelet says, when you're sort of the flip side, is when your work is driven by a desire to bless other people, a desire to share what you achieve, what God gives you with other people, a desire to do good through your work, and not just to gain and gain and gain and never even enjoy it. So if people are competition, contentment will be fleeting. There'll be moments where you think, oh, I've made it, and then it'll go away when the other neighbor pulls in in the next newer Mustang, right? Uh, there's no contentment if people are competition, and there's also no contentment if people become just completely inconsequential because joy shared is joy doubled. We should work so that we can share what we have with others. So these are, these are ways you will not find contentment. He, then he turns in verses 9 through 12 to how we find contentment in this life. And he says people are companions on the journey to contentment. We need other people in our life to be able to, to find the, 
the goodness and safety and rest that we want as we live. You know, it, it's obvious. You can read these verses and it comes straight off the page, right? Um, verse 9, two can accomplish more than one. Teamwork makes the dream work, right? Safety first, then teamwork. Like, yes, obviously, two heads are better than one. We have all these sort of um, pro- proverbs in our culture that, that reinforce this idea that you and I can do more together than you or I can do individually. And there's this element of support also, kind of like my friend, you know, I wasn't literally falling into a pit or a ravine for him to, I hadn't literally fallen down for him to pick me up, but like emotionally, that's how I was kind of doing, and he picked me up. You know, imagine traveling in the ancient world, traveling in the ancient world in the, in the dark maybe, and you fall into a pit, you fall into a ravine, you fall and break your ankle, tear your Achilles tendon, right? What are you going to do unless you have someone there to pick you up when you fall? What if you're cold as you, as, halfway through your journey, you know, overnight, you're cold? Well, if you have another person to share body heat with, then you can survive and not freeze to death. And, and sort of most dramatic of all, what if the marauder, the attacker, the mugger comes and it's just you? Wouldn't it be so much better to have a companion? He gives all of these very um, clear and straightforward examples of how having a companion, having people in your life is so much better than facing the crises of life on your own. It is vanity to face it by yourself, subtext, but a a threefold cord is not quickly broken. If two are good, how much better are are three, right? And, And as you saw in the gospel reading, this is a theme that goes all throughout the Bible. God made us in his image and to be in relationship with each other. He made us male and female, and all through the Old Testament. You know, sometimes we think the the Old Testament is just a story of like God working with these individual patriarchs, but it's actually not. It's always the patriarch, usually their wife and their whole family. God is always working with like groups of people, networks, families, communities of people. When we get to the New Testament, one of the main images that God chooses to talk about his church is as a family. Titus chapter 2. We're supposed to be a family that care for one another. Jesus sends out his disciples two by two. So this, this theme goes all through the Bible, that it's better, that, that we have more contentment, we have more of the good life, the wise life, the not fleeting life, when we have real companionship in our life. So there's no solo Christians. They don't exist. There's, there is no such thing as bedside Baptist church. It doesn't, it doesn't work. You, and I know this means taking a risk, right? Because a lot of us have been hurt. We've been hurt in the church. We've been hurt by close friends. We don't want to open ourselves up to real relationship and real companionship, but we have to because you won't find contentment on your own. Loneliness is vanity, but companions can help you find contentment. So, so get in a small group. Get in some sort of discipleship relationship. Be here every week. Open yourself up to these essential relationships that God wants us to have because he wants you to have contentment. He has a calling for your life and you need other people (laughs) to help you fulfill that calling. You need, I need, companions to find contentment. But it's Kohelet. So he can't leave us on a happy note, right? He has to say, but ah, but even that, Even that, if you put too much emphasis on those companions, if you need too much out of those companions, if you think those companions 
can fulfill you in the ultimate and eternal sense, even that will turn out to be vanity. Now, these verses, verses 13 through 16, are, are really hard to interpret. I think of literally every commentary that I looked at had a different interpretation of what these verses meant. But I think the big, the big thrust of these verses is clear, right? There's a, there's a, a wise king, or a, a wise poor youth, who becomes the king because the king stopped listening to advice. He stopped listening to his companions. And so this young, poor person becomes the new king, and everybody loves him, right? Verse 16, there is no end of all the people whom he led. Every, he's, you know, he's top of the charts. He's uh, trending on social. Like, everybody loves this king, right? But then Kohelet says, but even this is vanity, because there's a day coming when the crowds will forget him. You know, uh, think about in your own family tree, how far back can you go until you don't know the names of people from whom you descend, right? Probably not very far. Maybe, maybe great-grandparents. That's only a couple of generations. So co- what Kohelet is saying is, just like you can't take your money with you, and you can't take your material things with you, you can't take, in some sense, your companions with you. If you look for ultimate satisfaction, ultimate contentment out of your earthly companions, even that will turn out to be vanity. Just like money, just like accomplishments. Companions are important in this life. They're essential, even, in this life. But we need a companion who can stick with us through death. And that's what Jesus is. He looked down into the world and he didn't see commodities. He didn't see people that he could get something from. But he saw people who were oppressed and entangled in our sin. And he came into the world and he took our oppression. He took all the ways that we participate in the injustice and sin of the world and he took it in his body on the tree. 1 Peter 2.24 He who was rich became poor for our sake that we might become rich. He delivered us from the enemy and from sin and death, and he is now the one who holds the keys of death and Hades, and he promises, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. There is one friend who will never forget you. Do you know him? Is your contentment tied to your relationship with him, and are you seeking to live your life to help other people flourish because you've found such a deep well of satisfaction in Jesus. That's what Gohelet has to teach us, and that's who Jesus wants to be for us this morning. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes, which I found, at least personally, every week, deeply challenging and convicting. And Lord, I, I'm so thankful that in that challenge and in that conviction floods in the grace of the gospel. So, Lord, help us to cling to Jesus, the friend who never forgets us, and to to be then free to open ourselves up to real relationship, community, companionship in this world so that we might find contentment and help others find it, and most of all, find it in you. So, Lord, help us to that end. Glorify yourself, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.